This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. Voluntary principle states that all human relations should happen by mutual consent or not at all. This podcast aims to promote respect for the voluntary principle in all walks of life and for all age groups. My name is Skylar Collins, and this is Everything Voluntary. Do you wonder whether or not you should spank your children? Then read my third book, No Hitting, a short guide on why spanking is unnecessary. You may download the book for free at everythingvoluntary.com or purchase it in paperback at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Uh, Before we start the episode, I want to invite you to join me as a featured guest. I'd love to chat and get to know you and give you this platform to bounce your ideas around. To schedule, go to the main website at everythingvoluntary.com. On the right-hand side, there's a link to schedule with me immediately. Click that link, select a day and time, answer the questions, and submit. That's all it takes. Thank you so much. Hello, sir. Hey, how are you, Skyler? Doing well. How are you? Good, good. You can see and hear me all right? I can't. Okay, good, good. (laughs) I don't think... see you again. Have I used Zoom with you? I think we used Facebook before, and I think I like Zoom better, so I'm glad you suggested it. Yeah, okay. No, I think we did use Zoom at one point in the past, uh, maybe. I I don't know. It's been we've had a we had, we, you know we had a couple of times you had to cancel and so here we are hooking up after again. But regardless, you know it, it's uh, it's it's good to see you again. <laughs> yeah, here we are. It's been yeah, it's been a couple of months. I we you are um, and I'm and I'm thankful for it because I love chatting with you. You you're kind of you schedule kind of a month out after we record, and then the last couple of months I've had to had to cancel, and of course um, you're busy guys, so rescheduling usually happens a few weeks later, and then I cancel again this time i'm like i'm not canceling (laughs) (laughs) that's okay that's all right i can i can always work around it you're right things have been crazy kind of busy kind of busy um so unless you had something i i was i was going to introduce something that i had on my mind kind of uh which we had talked about briefly in the email but yeah yeah let's do that go ahead okay yeah um and i bring this forward because it was really you know Sometimes you, you you say in your podcast, sometimes you say, I don't even know if anybody even listens to this or anything like that. Well, typically I do listen every once in a while. There'll be one that, you know, maybe doesn't interest me or I just don't have the time or something like that. For the most part, I listen. And when I say listen, a lot of times it's like in the background and I'm, I'm doing other things. I'm cleaning the house. I'm feeding the dog. I'm, you know, blowing up the dishwasher, whatever, you know, I'm running around the house doing things. And one thing that I, um, uh, you talked about within recent memory repeatedly in different broadcasts was you were talking about um, when people have had uh, a very uh, abusive or a very antagonistic childhood or upbringing, and they walk around with this uh, real rage, this real anger inside of them. And you've brought that subject up a few times now in a few different podcasts. And the first Maybe three or four times you, you talked about it. It, it kind of, you know, it stuck in my mind a little bit. And then you went on to other things and I was paying attention to other things. And it, it, it took kind of, you know, it was the classic psychological effect of it took a little bit of repetition 
in order for it to kind of sink in. And maybe like the fifth time or so you mentioned it. And I remember the expression you used too. You said, you know, you've got this guy who's just walking around with this burning rage inside of him. You use the term burning rage. I remember that specifically. Don't remember exactly which podcast. That was how you phrased it. And all of a sudden, all that I can all that I can describe this as is it was like a jigsaw puzzle with the pieces spread out over a table just for years and years. And all of a sudden, it all just came together. There was this click moment. and Everything kind of came together in my mind. And before I can proceed any further with that train of thought, a little bit of background history is necessary, okay? Um, and I've written about this before. It's, it's up striketheroot.com. It's not really any kind of a secret. I don't know if I've mentioned this on this podcast before, but I will now for the first time if indeed I haven't mentioned it before. And that is that I spent 27 years, more or less, as a very serious alcoholic. Uh, I was, I was a, a critical by the time I stopped. I was, I was dying, put it that way. Um, I, without going into the big background behind that, because that would take too much time, um, I, I got myself into a 12-step program. I went every single day for about a year and a half, and then I went sporadically for about a year after that eventually tapered off and I've been completely clean and sober for over eight years now. I haven't touched a drink. I've never relapsed. Nothing. Thank God for that. Uh, however, you know, um, well, I, I can say that as a result of that, my temper, my temperament has been a lot more predictably maybe under control because of the fact that I stopped drinking. I'm not under the influence anymore. I'm not intoxicated anymore. The, uh, you know, three o'clock in the morning, boxing matches with the wall and rearranging the furniture and stuff. That's all over now, that aspect of this. Um, however, you know, um, I, I, I have had, you know, these, these, these internal fits of, of incredible anger uh, that are usually internal. I usually don't display it. Or if I do, I try very hard to restrain it. Sometimes people might see me snap at them or I get really testy. I, I lose my temper very easily in very small, minor, you know, social situations. Um, and it's something that I've kind of worked on. I've just kind of ignored. And when you said that, well, let's, let's come back to your podcast. When you mentioned that, everything fell into place. And what I mean when I say that is that what should have been very evidentiary and very obvious a long time ago, probably would have been a long time ago to any outside observer, became obvious at that point. And it was that I've been going around all these years before, before my alcoholism took shape. Uh, and, and let's back up a couple of steps too. Alcoholism is, is one of those words that it's like libertarian. People use the word, but a lot of people, there's, there's a wide variety of disagreement in terms of what that means. Or people use the word and they're not really using it correctly. They apply it to things or, or it doesn't mean what they think it means. And most people, I think, when you say alcoholism, they say, okay, it's a person who's physically and psychologically dependent on, on alcohol. And that's true. But that's also when you get right down to it, about 15% of the equation. And the rest are all the psychological and emotional conditions that led to a person becoming an alcoholic in the first place. And that's really the greater struggle. I mean, it's relatively easy in most people's cases. I don't want to say that unilaterally, but certainly in my case, it's, e it's, it's relatively easy to stop drinking and remove that from your life. And the rest is sorting out all the stuff that, that led to it. 
And so I, I began to realize in that moment, it was just, it was an instantaneous revelation that occurred was the fact that I've been going around all this time, all these years, eight years into sobriety. And believe me, there's a lot of things that you sort out in your mind once you stop drinking uh, and you begin to place your life into perspective. And it take, took me about maybe three and a half years without a drink to really get to a place where I would have been able to look you or anybody else in the face and say, yeah, you know, I, I think I've got a decent handle on things. I think I think very differently now than I did when I was a drunk. Um, but lo and behold, there were, there were still things to reveal themselves. And what ended up occurring in that moment, in that kind of light bulb moment that went on, that lightning strike moment, was that I began to realize for the first time that my upbringing uh, as a, uh, well, I mean, you know, as, as a kid uh, and as an adolescent and as a teenager, the circumstances in which I was ensconced were not normal. And here I was going around all these years thinking that, you know, okay, yeah, there were some hard knocks and there were a couple of things that were, that were kind of out of whack. But, you know, for the most part, you know, Hey, you know, a lot of people have, have issues like that. And, and a lot of people do. And a lot of people had it even worse than I did. But in looking back on all of it, in looking back on just my circumstances, and I, you know, it, it, would, be, it would be a whole nother podcast to, to talk about that. But my, you know, coming from a divorce situation, having step parents on both sides of that who were very toxic, sociopathic people having a lot of toxic people in various social circles in both of those situations that, uh, that affected me tremendously and through no fault of my own, just being in a vicious circle, moving around all the time, going to different schools where I was kind of like a fifth wheel and the kid that got picked on and, and got kind of ostracized from different social situations <laughs> to say nothing of the fact that it was always in government schools. I mean, we can, you know, we can go there too, but all of this stuff, all of this taken as a whole, it's no wonder I'm going around with this, with this chip on my shoulder and this anger and this violent, violent rage. And I used to think to myself, years into sobriety, you know, I think to myself, where the hell is this incredible Hulk inside me? This, this, just this, this, this vicious, sometimes even just bloodthirsty rage. Where is it coming from? Why do I feel like this? What is wrong? And the answer was right there in front of me the whole time. I didn't accept as completely dysfunctional and totally abnormal the circumstances under which I had been raised. I, I, I looked at it. I mean, an outside observer could have said, yeah, Alex, you've been through some bad stuff. But I didn't see it that way. I, I, I honestly just didn't see it that way because I wasn't able to, to, to weigh it or compare it against anything else because it's all in here. And it just goes to show you how you can go ahead with this, this blind spot going on inside of you for years and years and never recognize what's right in front of your nose, what should be self-evidentiary. And then on top of that, on top of that, so it felt instantly like this big weight had just fallen off my shoulders. And I, 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 I you know, unfortunately, the rest of it, again, I'm, it's almost like, like I, I'm in a next phase of things. I'm, I'm back where I was when I first stop drinking, which is you've got a road ahead of you. You've got to adjust your thinking. You've got to, you know, work things out. Now I'm in another phase where, okay, this habitual state of mind that I've been in, science shows us, you know, that that creates 
it, it creates actual physical changes in your neural circuitry. It creates changes in your brain chemistry. I've got the rest of my life to work to change that, to try to alter that as much as I can at the age of 51 going on 52. But, you know, the old saying applies, you know, today is the first day of the rest of your life. And I, I instantly took recognition of that as well when this whole thing hit me. But looking beyond that stage of this and being able to understand this anger and work with it on that basis, the next thing that hit me was a second lesson, a second lesson. And that is that it's okay to fail. And in fact, in some ways, it's the most natural thing in the world, fail it. And as, uh, you know, as, as an adjunct or as part and parcel of this whole situation that I've kind of described in very general terms, and again, being more specific would occupy hours and hours and days of broadcasting. We don't have that kind of time, but obviously, but, uh, it, you know, I was constantly told that I was wrong. I was bad. I wasn't doing the right thing. I was the problem. And it was it was all these people who were adults in name only, these people that should have known better, these people who were in charge of me to a certain degree, these people that I had to go along with, they were adults in age only. Otherwise, they were not adults. They were very toxic individuals with some really assholish agendas uh, that were that used me as sort of a punching bag and kicked me around like a like a football or a soccer ball. For, you know, for their own purposes, to suit whatever suited them at the time. And uh, I, I understand now that if we look at some of the most successful people in the world, you know, that they have failed more times than they succeed. We're only looking at their successes. You take like, let's say Michael Jordan, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. Yeah, he had all those successes, but he, he missed, uh, I think, something like 9,000 baskets during his NBA career. OK, he had all kinds of I don't know how many personal fouls he had or how many times he dropped the ball. He had a lot of failures, but he had to have all those failures. It seems counterintuitive to say, well, how can the guy be one of the most successful ball, you know, basketball players of all time? And yet he had all those failures. Well, when you look at it rationally, of course, he had all those failures. He had to to be that successful because he tried that many times. And that caused me to look back on my life and look at all the times that when I failed at something, I guess I must have subconsciously believed what I was told, that you're a failure, you're a jerk, you're substandard, you're an asshole, you're in the way, you're a problem. And so I would give up. And it didn't matter whether that was, you know, trying to trying to ask some girl out on a date or whether it was trying to build something or get a certain job or a comp or, you know, my first couple attempts at writing books or something until I eventually figured out how to do that on my own. That was one thing I broke through on and didn't, didn't quit at. But I've given up and gotten angry and just in the past, of course, just escaped into a bottle or a can or a glass. Is, that was my reaction to doing things because I, I didn't understand the principle that when you fail at something, not only is it natural and not only is it completely okay, the most successful people in this freaking world have gone through more failure than they've gone through success. And it's perfectly natural. And what you do when you fail is you don't give up. You get back up and you try again. And there's nothing wrong with failing. It doesn't mean you're a loser. You're a loser if you fall down and you stay down. You're not a loser if you get back up and you try again. So without going much further down this whole path, I, I just I've kind of expiated myself and explained myself. 
I want to really thank you because you, you inadvertently talked about something that caused me to, uh, to, to really re-examine my life. And I feel like I don't know where things go from here, but I can tell you that it was, it, you know, your podcast was a big help to me. Just in that, in, in making mention of this, it has helped me to place myself into a, a fresh frame of reference. And, and I, I, think it's, I think it's really helped. And I think I have a really a different direction to go in and a different philosophy to operate on. And in small ways, I'm already seeing it begin to pay off. Um, if nothing more right now than just emotionally, you know, uh, and, and I've got some work to do. I have much work to do on myself. Absolutely. You know, uh, I, I, I am, by my own admission, a very damaged human being. I, I, I openly admit that. But thankfully, that damage has never externalized itself in a way that was tremendously de detrimental to anyone else. Thank God. I want to always prevent that. Keep that in mind. Um, and, and, and while I work on myself peacefully and, and internally and do the work I need to, um, to, to correct these wrongs that were done to me and that were no fault of my own. But the rest is on me. You know, rest is on me. The, the rest, the, the repair work, the emotion, the, the repairing the emotional damage and moving forward in a constructive way. That's all me. And um, uh, anyway, I just thought I would share that with you because that's, you know, that's been part of my experience. And, uh, uh, you know, you, if it wasn't for, for, you know, for you mentioning that in your podcast, I might still be back there wrestling with these things that I should have seen years ago. But again, it just goes to show how, Human psychology is such that we can have these things, no matter how deep you think your intellect is, and no matter how pers uh, perceptive you think you might be, there are things that hover right in front of your nose that, that you don't even see. So anyway, I'll, I'll shut up for a minute and let you, <laughs> let you speak. <laughs> well, honestly, I don't know what to say. I'm, um, I'm really, really happy that something that I said had that effect on you. I've honestly, I've never had anybody tell me that. And I'm really happy for that. I'm happy for you. Thank you. Um, my realization that, that I was damaged, that I was broken happened after I had my first kid and that rage had come out in those, those stressful moments of a child being a child inadvertently pushing your buttons, quote unquote, through no fault of their own. They're just an ignorant kid, a child, a toddler, two, three, and not realizing that these are stressors for you, stressors for you. And because of the trauma, you are now suffering. And I didn't even know it because, again, this is not something that ever came up before. Right. But actually suffering from a type of PTSD. And when the stressors are pushed, then that sort of comes back out. And there were times where I was just uncontrollably angry. And for me, thankfully, it wasn't, you know, picking him up and throwing him through a window or anything like that. But it was screaming in his face. I remember vividly one, one situation in the car where I dropped my wife off at a birthday shower at my grandma's. And he didn't want her to go, but he, he couldn't. We'd already decided that he wasn't going to stay with her. I was going to take him with me. And so it's let's go. And he's grabbing onto the door frame, not wanting to leave. And I'm pulling his hands off. And this is just making me more upset because I've got like cousins and family members just watching this happen. So this is becoming more and more stressful as it goes on. And I pull his hands off and I close the door 
and I go to the car and I put him in the back seat and I'm just fuming and I get in the front seat and I just unload, just yelling. I just turn around and just right in his face, just screaming at him. Like, why are you doing, you know, and he's just crying. He's got tears coming down. Um, there were other times where I never really spanked him out of anger. It was more, I was trying to be scientific about it. Like, well, if you poop your pants, then I'm supposed to give you a spank. Like I was trying to be scientific about it. So the times that it was me having my PTSD moments, it was more yelling and screaming. And it, it was really, it was that way for my own father, although he would, you know, he would like, he would like grab us right here, you know? Yeah. He'd be screaming yeah. at us and grabbing us or be poking at us like this, you know, like as he's making his points, screaming in our face. Um, so he was just the big, the scary, the loud. My mom was the, the spanker. There were times where my dad, I remember watching him grab my little brother and grab a wooden spoon and he was hitting him on the ass and the spoon broke. And that's traumatic for my brother, obviously. And that that shows clearly in the way he parents now. And just me as somebody who's witnessing this, obviously, it's traumatic because, you know, is, is that anger going to turn towards me at some point? Because maybe I failed to stop my little brother from doing something stupid and I'm the big brother and I should have known better, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, right. so right. seeing that happen, seeing that come out now that I'm a father and I've got this somebody pushing my buttons, had I had I taken a different route in life, maybe had I gone into the military or something and been put into real stressful situations? That would have come out in a different way. It would have come out with me, you know, murdering people. Right. And oh, sure. maybe feeling good about it, you know, and that, that, sure. and that something like that growing up inside and becoming a real, real, you know, who knows. But, but it was realizing, wait a minute, me getting angry and doing this to this other person is not what I believe in politically, right? I talk about non-aggression principle, but here I am being aggressive. There's, there's, some, there's a disconnect here. So then I found peaceful parenting and unschooling and, and totally changed the way I was doing things. So the same could have happened for you. I know you haven't had kids. You're not married. You no. went you went through something else, right? You went through alcoholism. I didn't know that. And, you know, so I don't know at what point you were finding voluntarist ideas throughout all that. But yeah, well, it's, about, uh, uh, I'm sorry. It, I was just going to say it, it and I, I had never called it PTSD. It wasn't until last year when I went to see this guy who does these ketamine, who runs this ketamine clinic for people who suffer from depression, anxiety, PTSD. He does these, these clinically administered, totally legal ketamine uh, shots. And you sit there in his office on his big bean bags with Netflix in front of you or whatever you want to do as you go through this. They call it a K-hole, I guess, in the, in the biz. <laughs> and those were helpful to really clear out some of the depression and the anxiety and whatnot and, and sort of helped me feel good for the next couple months until it wore off. And there's, there's things it's doing chemically in the brain that they're discovering things like uh, psilocybin mushrooms and MDMA and some of these other psychedelics have a lot of these same effects where they're, they're finding out finally that they're really good for this kind of problem. So, um, but it wasn't until my consultation with him and I was telling him, why I'm there, how I'm feeling, and some of my history. And he was kind of probing into me that he said, this is PTSD. And I said, PTSD? I was never in the military. This is an army guy thing. Why would this be PTSD? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, but he I said, mean, I you can know. see how you would maybe go to that conclusion. Yeah. Yeah, so I'd never thought of it like that. But he said, yeah, that sounds a lot. And he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a medical doctor. He's not a psychologist. But he said, based on you know what he believes, 
that sounds like PTSD. Right. So I've kind of framed it like that since, and I think he was right. So, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it, it is something that, I mean, I, I think if I didn't have this problem and somebody was, was threatening somebody I loved, like a kid, I could probably muster some anger, you know, some, some of that type of, uh, some of that type of, protective love-based rage towards an enemy but this is this is a this is a different thing that exists in so many people that have suffered trauma and they don't even realize it and it's not until they right. get into super stressful situations that it, it starts to come out unfortunately for a lot of people that's not until they have kids of their own and it comes out in them being that kind of parent and just sure repeating the cycle of trauma the cycle of abuse sure. so um yeah, I'm uh, very happy to hear that, that that connection was made for you. Well, well, thank you. Thanks again. You know, and, and uh, it sounds like in very different ways or, or maybe not so different ways, you know, but in, in kind of different ways, you and I have kind of traveled down the same highways in this in this regard. You know, um, you know, it, it sounds like your experience took place within the context of, I guess, what we would call the nuclear family. You know, in other words, your biological mom and your biological dad were pretty much with you through the whole thing. And then you had siblings and other things. I was an only child and my my parents divorced uh, during what was called the divorce generation. This is back in the early 70s. Uh, and, um, you know, the, when there was a whole wave of, you know, divorce finally became kind of like a socially acceptable kind of thing. And, you know, I, I can remember years and years later reading, I don't know if it was on the Internet or if it was actually just some old back issue. But it was a it was an article that ran in People magazine in like 1973. And you could you could probably search engine this and it'd probably come up. But they were talking about, you know, this divorce generation kind of thing back then. And these uh, these psychologists that were commenting in this article uh, you, you just you, you have to really issue a few cynical laughs towards their predictions, because what they were saying was, hey, look, you know, I mean, divorce is probably not the greatest thing for kids, but uh, it, it's possible that in the, in the coming years, we'll see that the diverse range of experiences that they'll be exposed to as a result of this might actually make them into better people. And, and it's like you look back at that and you go, what a bunch of total horseshit that was. You know, what a bunch of sociological horseshit that was. It's one of the worst things that can happen to a child. And, and you know, in some instances, it's not as bad as it was in mine because the relationships that the parents got into later were with maybe relatively normal people, okay? In my case, my mother married someone who was basically kind of like a narcissist and kind of a passive aggressive personality. And my father is still married to a person who is who is a total clinical sociopath. I mean, a total sociopath. And he refuses to acknowledge this. And you can't even get into a conversation with him about it. And it's really divided us. And I haven't really been able to see the result of it. Um, so, uh, you know, these... <laughs> You know, the diversity of experiences, People magazine, uh, that I had were anything but beneficial. They were anything but beneficial. So um, those psychologists, if they're still alive, uh, can take their contentions from 1973 and shove them up their asses because I'm, I'm not, I'm not, you know, there's, there's no merit to that argument at all um, as far as I'm concerned. I think that except in the most dysfunctional situations. 
and you've touched upon this as well, um, where, you know, let's say one of the biological parents is a child molester or one of the biological parents beats everybody physically to a pulp routinely or is a very violent, out of control person. Then I would say, yeah, probably divorce and separation is is the, the lesser of the evils in that situation. But otherwise, even if it is a situation where there is some dysfunctionality, I would say that it's better off for the kids to remain with those nuclear parents. Uh, that is certainly a better situation in 98% of instances or thereabouts than a divorce because it subjects kids to a lot of traumatic experiences, a lot of confusion. I'm not saying it's going to be as bad as what I experienced. God forbid it is. But in many cases, it is. Or it's something almost as bad. Uh, it's, it's not a good thing. It's not, it's not a healthy thing, you know, to have happen to kids. So, you know, when you have couples that get divorced, if you don't have kids, okay. I mean, that's not a big deal. You're adults. You Maybe you divide up some money or there's a house you have to sell or something. Not a big deal. You, 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 you do what you need to do and you go on with life. But when there are kids involved, for God's sake, think of them first and see if you can grow up and be adults and try to solve your problems and stay together for those kids if you can. If there's any possible way you can do it, stay together. Don't, don't have them go down the same path that I had to go down and that so many other people have had to go down. And, you know, I mean, what happened to me was relatively mild. I mean, look at all the, uh, you know, the, I mean, I, I'm not saying in every case that it's been because of a divorce, but, you know, look at all the, the you know, like the, you know, school shooters or, you know, serial killers and, you know, the kind of Ted Bundys that, that end up out there in society as a result of this kind of thing. Now, again, in, in some cases, these kinds of people arise because of other circumstances. It's not just divorce. It's not just, you know, traumatic childhoods. There are other factors at play in some of that stuff. But, you know, people wonder why we have so much violence and so much discord in society. This is a big part of it. If, if, if a lot of these people had just had decent upbringings, decent parenting, decent childhoods, a lot of these tragedies could have been avoided, you know? Um, and I, I'm just, I'm, I'm really thankful that I never went over the edge in my own experience, and believe me, there were a lot of times in my past, in the, in, in the distant past, where it could have happened. It could have very easily happened because the level of anger that I had inside me was just, was, it was like Niagara Falls. It was just exploding out of me. And there were, there were, some, there were some pretty ugly episodes uh, in, in my life that I can recall. And man, it, it, it's, just, it's, it's something that I would only wish upon my worst. And even then... <laughs> Maybe in a more rational moment, maybe not even then. It's 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 horrible. So anyway. Well, they there are there are a lot of studies and research that look into the childhoods and the upbringing of violent criminals, and it's something like ninety five, ninety eight percent have violence in their childhood. Yeah, I would believe that, of course. You know, yeah. so yeah, it's absolutely yeah. true that that childhood trauma, not. Not everybody who experiences childhood trauma grows up and becomes a, a violent criminal, but every violent criminal, almost every violent criminal out there had childhood trauma. <laughs> right. Um, so are you familiar with uh, – she's passed away now. Um, she was a French psychologist named Alice Miller. Is this a name you've ever heard? 
I have heard that name before. I, I, I don't know much about her, but the, the name does sound familiar. Well, she's she's done a lot of work, and I'll I'll send you some links. Um, I you probably if you have my first book, she has an article in there. Um, but there's this really really great article that is based on a lot of her larger works about um, Adolf Hitler. Oh, okay, yes, I have read that article. Yes, okay, yes, yeah, I'm, I am familiar with at least that one article. That's where I heard the name because I I recall reading that on the internet. Yeah, yes, yeah. that's a. Uh, well, the the article That's in really my book article. talks about Hitler and talks about Stalin and then talks about Gorbachev and it's it's a bit more broad. She has another article, uh, um, I think it's titled "How Did a Monster Succeed in Blinding a Nation?" and it mm. it it is about Hitler and his upbringing, but it puts it in the wider context of German upbringing and how the the major parenting advice figures and books you know at the time went into several edition reprints, several reprintings, 10, 20, something like that, you know, 20 and 30, 40 years before Hitler came to power. And the, this advice on how to parent your kid was very violence centric. Mm -hmm. And so you have people who are as a core part of their culture, beating their children, okay. Creating widespread childhood trauma for generations. And now you have, the rise of Hitler, the Nazi party, the Holocaust. There is a direct connection between those two things that Alice Miller points out. Absolutely. And nobody else, when they're, when they're talking about the, hit, uh, the Nazis and Hitler and, and uh, Mao, right, and the Chinese, I mean, it, it's there too, um, the Soviets and Stalin. and ev- Nobody's talking about childhoods. <laughs> Everybody wants to find some other explanation. And there's a lot of, right. there's a lot of, yeah. there's a lot of things in the adult world that sort of culminate and lead to the rise in these these powers, but that 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 stuff inside starts in childhood, and very few people are talking about it. I mean, Alice Absolutely. Miller, um, Robin Grill, who wrote a great book, uh, "Parenting for a Peaceful World," which chronicles different modes of parenting through the ages of humanity. Just just reading about how children were treated as recently as you know a hundred years ago, it just breaks your heart. Mm-hmm. And it's it really is, I believe it truly is the reason we have so much violence and hatred and conflict in the world today. And and I think it's the root it's the roots of authoritarianism and statism. You know? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think so. And and again, that I think, you know, to go a step further, the reason why it's not being talked about is because it doesn't really lend itself to some kind of a political solution, right? Because within the statist paradigm, everything has to be solvable somehow through government. Everything has to be another law we need to pass or another tax we need to raise to solve this problem, to do away with this monster. But then when you say, well, look, there's really no political solution to this. You're not going to be able to reach into people's homes and change their parenting philosophy. That's something people have to do on their own. All of a sudden, it's like, you, you mean there's something important that needs to be done that government doesn't have power over? Oh, my God, that's just not acceptable. That doesn't fit in with our worldview. That doesn't help us to, to exercise dominion over other people. And therefore, we just can't go there. We can't talk about that because that's something that exposes the fact that it's beyond our control. You know, and, and uh, that's that seems to me to be why it's conveniently ignored 
because it can't really be used in any way as a as a as as a you know as a political avenue of of greater dominion over people's lives. Well, there are. Um, I think that's true for the most part. There are a number of European countries that have outlawed spanking. Like that. That's that's a thing that has happened over the last twenty years in several European countries. I think all the Scandinavian countries. I don't think Britain or France. I'm not sure about Germany. But there, there have been a number of countries in Europe that have outlawed spanking, kind of, you know, kind of like in this country there used to be, and in some places in the South, I think there still is, but there used to be schools that would spank kids. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and I, I think there are in the South, there are still some places where that's legal. I don't know how common it is to actually happen, even if it's still on the books, that it's okay. But that has gone, you know, slowly been changed through law. Well, first through culture and then through law. We know that, that law follows culture. Could there be in, in this country on a state, probably on a state level, some prohibitions on spanking? And would I support that as a voluntarist and as a peaceful parent? I mean, do I support laws that prohibit murder? I mean, kind of. <laughs> I don't like how it all works, right? And would I support laws against spanking because of how horrible that is. I don't know. What do you think? <laughs> yeah. Well, I, first of all, I mean, my first comment is, is, you know, okay. It's one thing to pass laws against spank, but that spanking or whatever, a corporal punishment. But the thing is that only addresses one isolated area of parenting that can produce these kinds of detrimental results in kids. There's really no legislative way to, uh, to curb, let's say psychological, emotional. That's something that's much more subtle and in its way, much more insidious. You know, um, you know, I can remember I can remember once one instance of my dad spanking me when I was very little. This is uh, I was like maybe three and we were at the Museum of Science in Boston and we we had, we had gone with my mother. We just come out of the gift shop and they had these turnstiles like, the, you know, that you kind of push through and, and come through one way and push through. And I thought they were kind of neat. And I kind of ran over and I was kind of giggling and everything. And I remember my mother talking to me about this many years later. And she said, you knew you were being bad. You knew you were misbehaving on, you know, on me and your father. And so I, you know, I was, I was, my dad kind of, you know, followed me. I, I went ahead of them through the turnstile or under it. I mean, I was small enough to just go right under it. And my dad kind of followed me through it and ran up behind me and just kind of spanked my bottom. And I remember it didn't really hurt. It just kind of shocked me. Like, wow, whoa, you know, and it kind of just lifted me up off the ground. And I started crying and everything because I was not because I was in pain, but because I was surprised, you know. But I think that was, to me, looking back, that was kind of just like a small potatoes kind of thing compared to my parents separating a year later. And then all the things that followed, all the things that followed were far worse. And all the things that followed, I mean, there was physical violence later on as, as, as the years went on, certainly in, in, in certain areas and under certain conditions and circumstances here and there over the years. Um, but I don't, I don't think that spanking as a young child really, I mean, there could be some subconscious stuff going on that I'm completely unaware of, but there's nothing that stands out in my memory with that at, at being nearly as bad as the as the more the deeper psychological emotional and psychological stuff the the constant insinuation or in some cases even just flagrant statements that you know you're out of line you're a problem 
you're not, you know, getting with the program. You're creating all the turmoil in this household. You're the one that's, that's, that's doing the wrong thing. When in truth, looking back and analyzing it rationally as an adult, it was all these adults projecting their own bullshit onto me so that they could get away with certain because they had the, you know, they had the adult authority. They had the adult privilege of being able to say, no, it's, you know, it's your kid that's acting up. It's your kid that's pissing me off. It's your kid that's, that's an asshole. It's your kid that's getting in the way of our relationship. You know, all of that stuff was far more damaging than, you know, my dad spanking me on the bottom when I was three years. I mean, that's, um, you know, I, I think the only reason I really even remember that incident is probably because we were at the Museum of Science. It was kind of a fun day. And, you know, it was kind of like shocking. It was kind of a surprising thing, but it wasn't, it wasn't anything that made me hate my dad or made me angry at him. It was all the other stuff that happened later on that was, was far, that stands out in my mind far, far more. Yeah, I think, I think the use of shame has been an unappreciated, you know, by all, you know, all the people who study this stuff, an unappreciated or underreported or un, under commented on or studied or looked at tool that has caused significant amount of damage in people. And that, that's, that's what it is. Obviously, um, getting spanked is also a, a type of shame, right? Because you're being told that you're bad and you deserved it. Right. Um, but people very – I don't want to say evil people because for each person that I would consider evil, you've got to look at the child inside them <laughs> that they used to be before they were victimized and became the evil sure. person. And that includes some of the worst people like Hitler and stuff. But some of some of the greatest evils in the world have been have been crafted and committed and, and put forward and maintained through the use of shame. And and you're right. I mean, getting getting a swat on the bottom is probably not very traumatic, right? When when it's the screaming and the shaming that happens after that, it's probably where the trauma happens. It's kind of like um, it's kind of like when when a kid is maybe touched inappropriately by an adult and they don't they don't know any better the the kid doesn't know any better they don't really know what to think of this they just think it's right. weird like why you know it didn't hurt right so it's not painful it's just right. weird and yeah. then the adults in their life who learn about it they then make this really big deal and they they tell the kid that this was a wrong thing and then they start to feel shame about it that's kind of where the trauma happens right so the trauma right. isn't possibly that the actual molestation that happened the trauma comes through the reaction to the molestation so we need a we need a we need to respond to that i think in a better way because i think that is causing a significant amounts of harm maybe most of the harm that happens after that than the actual molestation does and it may be true for you know you know different types of spanking and stuff that's not really really painful it's sort of the stuff that happens after the the fear that's created. And, and when, when somebody becomes afraid, they get the stress hormone, cortisol, fills their bloodstream or adrenaline, fills their bloodstream. And I think that the longer these chemicals are in our system and, and going in our brains, I think mm -hmm. that there is damage being done on a, oh, absolutely. On a biological level that, from really. these, these yeah. chemicals being flooded in our system for prolonged absolutely. periods of time. I think that is what trauma is. Absolutely. No, I, you know, I, when I was talking about that a little bit earlier, 
there, there is no question. I mean, science is already pretty much, you know, I mean, science has never settled. I don't mean to suggest that, but there is strong evidence, you know, tantamount to being conclusive, really, that, uh, uh, you know, that, that, that exactly that what you're saying is exactly true, that these kinds of chemical injections of, of natural chemicals over time, it, it creates permanent, you know, neural, it, it changes the structure of the neural circuitry and it creates chemical imbalances that simply perpetuate themselves. And until or unless these trends are reversed and, and you know, some of the damage is probably to a degree permanent. Uh, unfortunately, you know, at least in terms of the restructuring of the neural circuits, which beyond a certain age in a person's life, it's questionable whether the brain can then begin to restructure itself, whether there's enough time and enough uh, life vibrancy left in, a, in an aging person to, for that to be able to reverse itself. I think the chemical balances can probably be dealt with at you know, almost any age, but, but the, uh, the changes, the structural changes to the wiring of the neural circuitry that's probably, you know, another issue. Um, to back up a couple steps, I, I, maybe I should clarify in case I have not. And I, I, guess, I guess I just want to do this because it's, it's important to me to clarify. One area of abuse that I did not, I can say honestly, I did not experience was sexual. I, I did not experience any kind of sexual as a child. That's, that's one thing. Physical abuse, um, yeah, you know, it wasn't constant, but it, it, it happened from time to time. But definitely the emotional, the psychological, the, the constantly feeling, it was just like a panopticon where everywhere you turned, you were being persecuted, whether it was either one of my step-parents, whether it was my biological parents, whether it was the teachers at school, whether it was the other kids at school. Whether it was, you know, uh, people out there in society, you know, the cops and stuff like that. Everywhere you turn, people were telling me, you're wrong, you're bad, you're doing, you know, things you're not supposed to do. You're, you're out of line, you're in the way, you're, you're this, you're that. Nothing was encouraging. Almost nothing was encouraging. Almost everything was criticism and antagonism. And so, yeah, what do you think the end result of that is going to be in anybody? In anybody, I mean, even the, even a person with the greatest degree of psychological and emotional fortitude is going to be affected to some degree by that, you know? And then when you're talking about somebody that's still developing, someone that's still growing, it, you know, it's a recipe for everything, from, you know, ranging from total disaster, you know, like a serial killer or a, or a school shooter or something, all the way to just a person that has a very self-destructive, unhappy life. And that's the path I was on until I stopped drinking. And then I guess the next phase, thankfully, is, is, is this revelation that kind of hit me maybe, you know, three weeks ago. Um, well, believe it or not, it, I mean, and we talked about childhood and adolescence and the, the trauma that can happen there, but there are very, very mainstream traumatic experiences that happen in infancy. Okay, the idea of putting a baby in a bed who's who's crying and letting them, quote, cry it out in order to learn to fall asleep and to self-soothe, that's an, an incredibly traumatic experience. Because when they're crying it out, they've got all the stress hormones flowing through their system for prolonged periods of time. And I'll I'll link to this, but I was trying to find something else, but I did find this article on stress and in infancy by Linda Palmer. I don't, I don't know. I've, I've probably read this before, but I don't, 
she links to all kinds of studies, but and I'll, I'll link to it in the show notes, but it's all about, um, and she talks about cortisol and she talks about um, all kinds of things that happen. Um, allowing a child to cry it out, uh, not feeding the child when they're hungry, right? So whenever a child's crying because they want something, because that's the only way they communicate, if you're not responding to that, that prolonged crying becomes a physically, biologically stressful uh, situation for them. Sure, sure. Um, so you could have a child who had a lot of this really early trauma in life, and then later on, you know, they never have a situation where they're spanked or their parents are divorced or any of these other sorts of things, but they could still have problems that they don't really know the the, the source of when it was this stuff that happened in infancy. Infancy. So it, it's 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 crazy, and it's why I like to to read about how our evolutionary ancestors, how hunter gatherers raise their kids, and it's it's totally violence free. Their babies are constantly swaddled and on the mother. Right. So there's a lot of people today that will get into like baby wearing and breastfeeding and co-sleeping and all of these wonderful things that we've we've done with with my youngest. And it it's just research is showing that that's the best way to build empathy in people is to constantly be responsive to everything the baby needs and not not allow it to cry for pro prolonged periods of time. Um, you know, it's, so it's, it's, it's it. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to cut. You. No, I was going to say well, I was just going to conclude that it, it it's even. For a lot of people, it even starts earlier than just, you know, childhood and adolescence. It starts in, in you know, as their babies. And, the, you know, practices like cry it out where you just stick the kid in, in his bedroom and let him cry himself to sleep is actually a really horrible practice that nobody, nobody, nobody realizes. <laughs> right, right. You know, I, I was about to say what, what, what uh, the thought that comes into my mind is that probably in these ancient societies, um, the, the, the mother you know, sort of cradling or swaddling the baby like that was certainly like a, like a considered a very necessary thing because they were living in an environment where there were wild animals, there were predators, there were probably other tribes of people that could be marauders or attackers. And so that kind of protection, you know, was seen as very, as very necessary. And just, you know, that's just what you did. You had to, in order to protect your young. And in more modern times, as things have evolved, it probably, you know, sub, at least subconsciously anyway, uh, the attitude has been, well, okay, you know, the baby is safe. The baby is in a house. The baby is, you know, among family members. Nobody's harmed the baby. We're protected. We're inside. We're indoors. It's warm. It has blankets. It has food. So we can set the baby down in the crib over there and let it take a nap or something. And, you know, you have to admit, I mean, you wouldn't really think that there's anything too wrong with that. You know, I mean, that's, you know, the baby's fine. If it's, it wants to go to sleep or, you know, it's, it's had its bottle or whatever. And you, you set it down in its crib and let it take a nap. And the adults, you know, can go and, you know, make dinner or whatever else they need to do. And inadvertently, you know, it's producing these negative results. Uh, so it's, it's interesting to me that something that was at first really just kind of a, a physical safeguard and, and virtually a necessity, you know, over time as, as society became, you know, more quote unquote civilized, you know, I, of course we, we haven't, I'm with Mahatma Gandhi. Civilization would be a good idea. We haven't yet achieved one, but uh, you know, the idea gradually arose that, okay, you know, it's safe to set the baby down. We're not going to be attacked by wild animals. We're not going to be attacked by another tribe. We're in a safe 
stable environment. The baby is fed. The baby is taken care of. It has warm clothes. It has blankets. Let's relax a little bit. You know, and 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 yet it still produces these psychological results. It's it's very a very interesting paradox. You know, when you come right down to it. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't realize that. Um, Peter Gray, you know, Peter Gray. I've talked about him before. He, yeah, I've heard. Yeah, he's a researcher on uh, um, self directed education and stuff. But he's got a pretty cool essay. One of the earlier things I read from him was was about why kids protest bedtime. And it's because you're sending them away to be alone in a dark room. Right. Yeah. And if and if a kid was caught alone in a dark area, you know, a hundred thousand years ago, they would probably be gobbled up. <laughs> right. So right. we have this sort of evolution uh created instinct not to be alone and to be away from our families, especially at nighttime. But it's what we do. You know, we we set up right. bedrooms for our kids and we put them in there and so, you know, when I kind of got into that stuff, um, that's when we started doing like the co-sleeping in the family bedrooms. And we still, you know, we've had the family bedroom for a while now. My my oldest just turned 15 and he just barely, he just barely got his own room. <laughs> you know, he, he did when he was little, he had his own room because we, we weren't there yet. Right. And then after my, my third was born and we were doing the co-sleeping, we're like, hey, let's just make a family bedroom and put all the mattresses together. And the kids loved it. They were younger. They're like, yeah, you know. And I think it was instinctually they were like, yeah, this is how it should be. So we did that. And it and it's just now, now my son's like 15 and now he's like, I think I'm done with this. <laughs> we're like, okay. So we, we, we turned the playroom into his bedroom and we pulled all the toys out and got to figure out somewhere else to put that stuff. But now he's finally got his own room. And so that's, that's a new experience for him. Surprisingly, at, at 15, a lot of kids start that sort of thing when they're much younger. I, I did. I Actually, I shared a room with my brother, so I didn't really have my own room until I was about, I guess, 12, maybe 13. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. See, so. in my experience, I always had my own room. Because yeah. By the time my, by the time my half brother came along and, you know, we were living together in the same house during part of the time, I kind of got bounced back and forth between my mother's and my father's house through a bunch of really ridiculous events. You know, again, ties into everything I've already explained. Um, you know, he came, he didn't come along until I was like 12. Uh, you know, so I pretty much always had my own room. You know, there was always some kind of room that was, was mine. And then he had his separate room, you know, from square one. So I, I never ended up sharing a room with siblings. That's uh, that's a completely different experience that must, I would think, condition a person in a very different way and socialize a person in a very different way than, than what I experienced in that regard or what anyone experiences in that regard, even a, even a person that didn't really have as traumatic of a situation as my own, but still had their own room. If they, whether they were an only child or whether they lived in a family that had a bigger house and, you know, their brother or their sister lived down the hall or, you know, whatever. Yeah. Uh, that, that's, that's an interest. That's a whole, you could do all, I'm sure studies have probably been done, you know, all in and of themselves as to how people habituate based upon those kinds of various experiences where, you know, in one situation, you might have, uh, you know, a, a family that's very poverty stricken and you have like five people all living in the same room together versus, let's say, some very wealthy family where, you know, you know, your brother is like, you know, 200 feet down the hallway or something like that. You know? and, and they have their own, you know, 
you know, personal movie theater or something, and then you got your own, you know, whatever, you know, solarium or something, so, music conservatory or something. You know, who knows? I mean, it would be very interesting if there are studies out there to see what the what the effect is on people's socialization and and uh, people's you know varying degrees of social intelligence and things of that nature based upon those kind of link in, in, in all cases. So, so here's a situation that you've probably never experienced. Um, you've probably seen it parodied on television maybe, but the situation where one sibling hurts another sibling, probably accidentally, um, and then tries to convince the sibling not to tell mom or dad because then they're going to be in trouble, right? It's like, I didn't mean to hurt you. Please don't tell mom and dad because if you do, I know that I'm going to get in trouble and I'm going to get yelled at or screamed at or spanked or whatever. <laughs> just, just, just that that mental place of trying to convince somebody you just hurt to have your best interest at heart <laughs> and not to tell on you for fear of, of getting, you know, this, this negative thing is, is an interesting place to be. And there was one time where we had just moved into this house, a second house in Sandy after we moved back from Dallas and out in the backyard, there was these big, big, long two by fours that were really old up on top of this, um, this area that had like a swing set. So it was kind of raised up and it had wow. like, um, probably the, the, you know, the big, um, railroad tie ties that you can buy the big sure. pieces yeah. of wood. Yep. So it's kind of yep. encircled by that or whatever. And I'm putting these two by fours on it and I'm putting rocks on one end and I'm jumping on the other to launch them up. And me and my <laughs> little brother, four years younger than me, we're having fun doing this. He's putting the rocks on and then I'm jumping on them and they're, they're, go they're launching. Well, I don't realize that he still has his head over it and I jump on it oh. and it comes up oh. and just hits him right under his nose oh. and puts a big wow. cut right across the top of his lip. Oh, man, that and immediately I'm in this, I'm less concerned about him and more concerned about what's going to happen to me that I, you know what I mean? Like there was no empathy right, here yeah. because yeah, of yeah, this, yeah. this fear of retribution by, by my dad when he gets home. And right, so the whole right. time I'm sitting outside, like, Oh man, I'm so dead. I'm just, you know, I got the cortisol and the adrenaline just, just freaked out the anxiety. Oh, yeah. And then my dad does come home and Sheldon, you know, look what Skyler did and points to it. And without even knowing the story, you know, he says, Skyler, get in here. And I go inside, you know, I've been outside just hiding this whole time. And I'm like 13. No, no, no. How old am I? Eight, nine. I'm 10. And I'm on the couch and he's just, you know, screaming at me, pointing at me, pushing on me. You know, you know, how would you like it if this, this, and it was, it was an accident. It, this wasn't like, I'm trying to hurt my brother. I'm not a criminal here. This was an accident, but I'm being right. treated like I'm a violent criminal. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. So, you know, that's um, not having any siblings that you can accidentally hurt and then fear punishment for. It's probably something you've never well, experienced. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I have had that experience, but not with siblings, with cousins. Okay. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Me, me and my cousins would hang out at, at one of my grandparents' houses. And we would get up to all kinds of shenanigans. So I, I've been that in that position, but more in the context of, oh no, you know, grandma and grandpa are going to find out, especially grandpa, and he's gonna he's gonna tear into us because you know my grandfather was not, you know, he wouldn't stay his hand. I mean, if you if you did something, you know, the hey, just whack you right upside the head, and you know, hey, you know, cut that out, you know, and and so uh, uh, I, I've been there, just in a little bit of a different context. That's all. <laughs> so. Um... Did your parents ever have any other kids? Do you have any half siblings? I'm just curious. Yeah, I have. I have one half brother uh, on my through my mother. 
he was born i was born in 1969 and he was born in 1981 wow. um so I, I i stay in touch with him uh, our mother died uh, about four and a half years ago um so i i try to stay in touch with him he's very busy he works all the time but we you know we're still on very good terms uh even though i'm i'm not on good terms with his father but uh you know that's that's another story um and then my father in his own marital arrangements um I, I have I have an, an adopted brother and an adopted sister who I knew a little bit when they were very little, but as adults, I don't really know them much at all. They don't. I don't really have any communication with them. I'm not. I don't hate them. I'm not. You know, against them or anything. It's just uh, I don't. I don't. I don't really hear much. You know, they're adults, and one of them already has four kids of her own and has had her own trauma and travails, and she's been in and out of jail and things like that, you know, for most of her life. She's kind of calmed down a little bit, but there's still some vestiges of that going on. She's lucky to be alive, quite frankly. Wow. Uh, then the adopted brother, he's kind of the opposite. He's, you know, never really been in any trouble or anything. And he's married now. They don't, they, him and his wife don't have any kids, but he lives in Texas. And uh, the other part of the family, so to speak, lives in uh, the Florida panhandle. And so that's, that's where they are. That's the situation is that rests now. I'm, I'm up here in Vermont by myself with no relatives anywhere within, you know, a three hour radius of myself. And, uh, even those relatives are becoming further and fewer between now as time goes on. Yeah. That's that. Well, we're just over an hour. So why don't we, why don't we call it? <laughs> Okay. All right. Yeah. I know you had those other questions you wanted to get to. I apologize for not getting to that this time around, but maybe you can put those on the back burner for next time or. Yeah. Uh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I just kind of was thinking about those yeah. earlier, like what would be some interesting things to talk about, but yeah. You... Yeah. Well, the, the, the fourth one that you proposed, I won't give it away. No spoilers for future podcasts. That was one that I also thought was interesting and that I would, uh, I would address, but I guess by the next time that we meet, there will be without revealing what that was, uh, there will be a little bit more uh, clarification in terms of just where things stand, I suppose. Probably, you know, probably. In terms, in terms of that. So, so. because I think that's uh, that my first reaction to that question was going to be, we don't know yet. You know, we're, things are still very much up in the air in terms of being able to even answer that question. So, yeah. Um, you know, we'll see. We'll see where things are in, you know, the next maybe two and a half weeks are going to be uh, kind of critical in that regard, probably. Yeah, it's um yeah, we'll talk about it then. It'll be it'll be closer. Um yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um all right. Thanks so much, man. It's good seeing you. Thank you. All right, all right. We'll we'll talk to you next time, Scott. Uh, thank you. I was you. gonna say thanks for the therapy session. Hey, thank you for for all the you know the therapy, inadvertent and uh, and direct. <laughs> okay. All talk right. to you next time. Okay, bye. Okay. Bye bye. Please send your comments and questions to everythingvoluntary at gmail.com. Please consider supporting this podcast and everythingvoluntary.com by setting up an automatic monthly donation at patreon.com forward slash EBC. One-time donations are also accepted at paypal.me forward slash everythingvoluntary. Will you do us a big favor? Will you rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening from? That really helps. And one more thing, please share the podcast with your friends. We really appreciate it.